My parents were never music lovers. I, I don't recall my mom ever really owning any albums besides John Denver's greatest hits. You know, finally, I got to hear Black Sabbath, you know, the harder stuff that they wouldn't have played in Aberdeen or on the radio in Montesano or Aberdeen, you know. So I, I, I was just like, you know, instantly a rock and roll fan, you know. I wanted to have the adoration of, of John Lennon, but have the anonymity of, of Ringo Starr, you know? I didn't want to be a front man. I just wanted to be back there, but, you know, be a rock and roll star at the same time. What were you listening to growing up? What do you think was most responsible for the way you sound? Or was it even music, was it? Well, first it was the Beatles, and then it was punk rock. That's about it. I don't want to turn into a prog rock band, literally, but I want to, I want to do something different, really different. You know, and I want to have enough guts to do that. And, I, and if it alienates people, that's too bad. You know, but you know, the Beatles went from not to compare us to the Beatles, but the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and bands like that went from, you know, I want to hold your hand to Sgt. Pepper's. You know, that was a massive progression. You know, listening to Nirvana for the first time, I'm proud to say I was there before Nevermind. <laughs> I was there for Bleach. Old school. Uh, yeah, someone turned me on to that album, and I was just like, who are these guys that are changing music? Yeah, that, that was one of the times when it was like I had never heard anything like it before, and it was so compelling. It must have been similar to what it was like when people first heard Led Zeppelin or the mm. Beatles, you know. But um, I remember seeing them live in San Francisco. I don't remember the date, but I remember it was the night that Bill Graham had died. Oh, wow. Like and... They were so fucking good. And the thing that was amazing about them was not just them. They were compelling and in incredibly charismatic. Mm. But also the crowd. The crowd was in a trance. Just undulating mass of pleasure. And everyone knew that, that uh, this was a moment. That mm. they were witnessing, you know, a historical... Uh, musical experience all right uh, everyone that was jack black talking about his uh i guess uh, edifying experience seeing oh Nirvana, uh before the album we're going to talk about today on episode two which is nirvana's nevermind so welcome back to the cfs cfx podcast uh, i'm jeff that's slip slip hey there um hey we're back, and we're here to talk about the follow-up to Nirvana's first album, Bleach, which is called Nevermind, which you may have heard of, including songs like Smells Like Teen Spirit and such. We'll get into all of that. But a reminder first of the conceit of this lovely podcast, which is that we are examining various different cultural ephemera, things like music and albums uh, and bands and movies and TV shows and things like that, and talking about them both in their original context and valuation, as it were, to the, the cultural uh, experience, what has happened since those things came out onto the scene. And then, of course, the core piece here, 
which is our assessment of their future valuation in the sort of futures exchange kind of way, whether you should go long on it short or relatively neutral. So that is what we're doing here. And today, obviously talking about Nirvana. But before we get into it, I think it's pretty important, you know, Slip, I think you'll agree here that examining the rock radio scene of the popular rock radio scene of the the late 80s is probably an important step because I think Nirvana was seen as a reaction or a counter to a lot of that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think uh, I think it's a combination of revolution and evolution uh, that kind of led to, you know, never mind exploding. Yeah, and it really did explode. Um, it really. I think did. that's yeah. It really did come almost come out of nowhere. Even though, if you look at it, there was a context to that. There was stuff going on in the underground that kind of bubbled up and they were the manifestation of that coming into the mainstream big time. And I, and I think your point about the mainstream and let's examine that a little bit. So if you were to turn on rock radio, mainstream rock radio, or, you know, circa late 1988, 1989, what would you hear? Well, you'd hear stuff like this. Or this. <laughs> I still laugh at that. Horrible. That song sucks. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. That is one big pile of shit. Yes, I, I think we'd agree with that. You'd also yeah. hear stuff like uh, like this. horrible that is one big pile of shit yes (laughs) (laughs) so bon jovi uh aerosmith uh other bon jovi stuff you heard on the radio at that time i'll spare you i'll just give you a little clip of it but it's uh this kind of (laughs) oh my god you know preparing this just listening to this was making me uh uh a bitch so you get the idea here. Right. All right. So we, we had Bon Jovi. Yeah. We had Aerosmith. And by the way, speaking of Aerosmith, this is a future episode we definitely have to do. But the delta between the best of an artist and the worst, Aerosmith has got to be at the top of that list. Between like oh, yeah. rocks, rocks and, and, and this garbage is has yeah. got to be some of the biggest divergence in, in quality, in my opinion, but we'll get into that in the future. Yeah. I mean, Aerosmith is one of the greatest and at the same time, worst comebacks of all time. Agreed. I mean, they were much more <laughs> successful in the late eighties, early nineties than I think they even were in the seventies, uh, monetarily speaking. But as far as artistically speaking, I mean, they're using external songwriters for a lot of their material. So not not great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Loving the elevator. Okay. I sorry, I, I'm playing around with all these sound effects. We're just gonna have to work through that emotionally, uh, audience. But 
the other, you know, other bands that were popular at the time, those were the biggest ones, your, your Bon Jovi's and your, your Aerosmith's. But we had gems like, uh, like this. Oh, yeah. Winger. Um, yeah, so Winger, uh, by the way, when uh, fishing around for this Winger clip, I saw somebody wrote in comments in YouTube that made me laugh hysterically. Somebody wrote, just listen to Reb Beach shred during his solos. And I thought to myself, wow, that is a comment that will never be uttered again in the future of music and history. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Probably not. It's crazy who, cause that band in particular was made up of pretty, I mean, at least um, the drummer, Rod Morgenstern or Morgenstein, he was actually the drummer for the Dixie Dregs. He's like one of the greatest drummers of all time, really, uh, playing with this incredible fusion band of the, you know, the late 70s and early 80s with Steve Morse, another incredible musician. And basically, this guy is just cashing in here. Yeah. You know, these guys are, are basically jumping on the hairband bandwagon and cashing in, even though technically they, these guys could play anything, even Kip Winger probably. Uh, and it's, you know, that's the climate that we're, we're looking at, at this time, you know, everybody's jumping onto this, even old veteran musicians who could play much more interesting music, but choose not to, you know, because of the way that, um, things were going at the time. Yeah, where the money was in the record industry yeah. for for certain, yeah. right? We also had other gems like um Remember this slip? I don't. Was that a hit? What is that? It's I don't even know what that is. Oh. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Now I now I recognize it. I, I tend to go more for the skid row ballads, like uh, 18 and Life and I Remember You. Those tend to be the ones I, I gravitate toward if I'm gonna listen to that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Horrible. Yeah. You, this was the request. So oh, yeah. You couldn't turn on the radio without hearing uh, this gem, 18 in Life, uh, from Skid Row. Um, clearly, interpreters of the uh, times. <laughs> and a lot of this, you have to credit to MTV. For sure. I mean, that MTV was the national radio station and it was completely and utterly dominated by hair metal at the time and so i think you know when we talk more about never mind we we have to talk about the video as well uh because nirvana that was that was the that was the the event that sealed the deal you know when their video came out and just dominated mtv they were kind of taking over that, you know, whole thing in a way. 
the, the, uh, not the only look. did they dominate it musically, but they completely destroyed it on MTV as well. Right. The the visual arts of it, as it were. Yeah. Right? So right. The, instead of having very, very pretty ladies like a Sebastian Bach on, you know, the MTV uh, videos, you had pretty ugly dudes wearing pretty ugly clothes. And that kind of transformed not only the music scene, but the fashion of the time, right? What people were wearing, how they were uh, kind of portraying themselves, things exactly. like that. Exactly. Um, lastly, I, I mean, look, I, I couldn't do this sort of zeitgeist of 80s hair metal without including this kind of stuff too. So just bear with me. Oh, yeah. So something interesting about this, uh, this is actually, that's a good clip to play uh, for this because during the time that Nirvana were recording Nevermind, they recorded it in Sound City in Los Angeles with Butch Vig. And at the same time, Warrant were there recording. And so when Warrant came in the studio, when ne- when uh, Nirvana was there, Kurt Cobain actually got on the... Uh, I guess the intercom or the microphone or whatever, and started screaming, where's my cherry pie? <laughs> my cherry pie. <laughs> he was kind of brazzing them. It's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. The, and deservedly so. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, Warrant, one of the few interesting things about Warrant is that they were one of the biggest victims of this like sudden shift to, to grunge music or alternative music. And, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about that. But they were all over the radio. They had obviously cherry pie. They had uh, things like this. Oh yeah. Um, what do you think about that, Paul? By the way, horrible. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, and then of course we you couldn't turn on the radio at that time without hearing uh, this. Yeah. Okay, so enough of that. You get the idea. That was all over the place. It was on the radio. It was on MTV. It was pretty much the the standard issue um, rock music that was available to most people at the time, obviously. There was other things going on musically, the, the whole alternative college scene that we'll talk about soon. Also, by the way, at this time, a couple of the best metal albums ever recorded were released around this time. Uh, one of them in... The fall of 1988, I remember this very vividly. Uh, you know, uh, Slip and I listened to this album probably incessantly with our friend Dennis, right? Which was uh, Metallica's Injustice for All. It came out uh, in the fall there. And a little while later, Megadeth's Rest in Peace album, which came out, I think it might have been 1989. Both really two of the best metal albums in the history of music came out around that time too. So good music was being made then. But one of the things that uh, was lurking in the background was an album by this band called Nirvana, and it was called Bleach. And if you were listening to the radio and you heard your Aerosmiths and, you know, you heard this kind of crap and you uh, heard, um, you know, your Bon Jovi's and you turn on MTV and you saw all these, you know, pretty metal boys playing their music with the hair and all that kind of stuff. 
this you didn't most people didn't hear this, but some people started to hear stuff like this. time I heard this too. So different, right? Yeah. And you also heard stuff like this from that album. And lastly, another great song off that album, Bleach, is this. Probably my favorite uh, song from the album. Yeah, and you can hear how heavy this stuff is, too. So it's got a punk element, but it's also definitely got a metal element. Like, to me, this song always reminded me of Motorhead. Yeah. It's it's got that kind of drive of Motorhead and that grittiness. I mean, the vocals even sound like Lemmy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, you you could see if you kind of have low fidelity on this song, you could kinda, is this a Motorhead song? So I actually think that's a great call out. Um, Nevermind was released in June of 1989. Um, oh, you was, mean Bleach? Oh yes, sorry, Bleach. That's right. Uh, Bleach was uh, released in. June of 1989, and it sold about 40,000 copies uh, around the time that it was released. And most importantly to to us is we started hearing about this uh, band and album roughly uh, thereafter, soon thereafter. This was not an album or a band that was setting the world on fire. This was a band that very few people probably had heard of. It's probably in places near you know, the popular cultural centers like San Francisco, like where we were, um, probably in New York and and certainly in Seattle in, in those areas, people probably knew about them, but they were not popular. People didn't know who Nirvana was. If you talked about it to people outside of the music scene, which uh, Slip and I were very much, you know, you know, part of at least in, in our area, um, nobody knew who they were. And what's interesting about Nirvana to me and in, in this album in particular, kind of my personal uh, history with it is I came at Nirvana and learning about them and being into them from a very different place than than Slip did. I, he'll talk about where he first heard about them and how he first got into it. But I was not really a big fan or part of the kind of college music scene um, bands that were popular at the time that were precursors, I guess, in a way to the grunge and alternative stuff. So you're Dinosaur Juniors and your Fire Hoses and your Sonic Youths and your Primuses and that kind of stuff. They were okay. Some of those bands were okay. Um, but it wasn't uh, really my thing. I was more into the metal stuff. I was more into some of the classic rock stuff. And, you know, we we had friends who were really into that kind of music and that was fine. And some of it I liked. 
But some of it I absolutely fucking hated. And one of those bands that I hated was Jane's Addiction. Uh, and, <laughs> and every time I heard this fucking song coming out of somebody's dorm room, I wanted to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Like, I just thought this was like horrible. Exa- exactly. And it was yeah, um, one big pile of shit. Yes, both. <laughs> I thought both of those were true. I hated Jane's Addiction. They were super popular at our college. And I was just like, I, I can't get behind this band or, or anything about it. I didn't like anything about them, their sound. I didn't think it was that interesting. I thought their lead singer was a putz. I still do. Um, and I just wasn't into it at all. But when I heard uh, Leech, and when I heard, I think the first song I actually heard was School. I was like, what is this? And I think I probably either heard it uh, slip from you or from, from Mike B. Probably um, heard it from me. Probably heard it from you, right? Yeah, like, I mean, it de- it depends. Because uh, I think... Well, we can go into my thing yeah, later. Take but, it away. But you could have you could have heard it on KZSC when Mike was playing it. But my guess is you, if you heard it from him, you might have heard it once. But if you heard it from me, you heard it all the time. Uh, because once I got the record, I just played it constantly. So yeah, if you want me to jump in, I. I can do it. Um, Absolutely. Take it away. So I'm the opposite. I was into all that stuff. I love Jane's Addiction. I thought they're, I still think their first live album is a total classic. I loved Firehose, Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, Primus, all of it. Um, I think you historically have been a little more skeptical of kind of newer things. I think I was much more trendy, you know, at the time. And the thing about Nirvana was it was all part of the Seattle scene. And that was so exciting to have this new scene come out that blended a lot of the newer stuff, the, the underground uh, music that was coming out at the time, but also had a was really rooted in early 70s heavy rock, which is one of my favorite genres to this day. Um, I, Black Sabbath, that was, that was when I first started getting into Sabbath. I'd always been into Led Zeppelin. I'd never been into Sabbath as much, but I got much more into them during this time. I got into the Stooges and things like that. And Sub Pop, which was the label that put out all this stuff, was heavily, heavily saturated with that kind of thing. I mean, the band Mudhoney could have been a 1973 obscure heavy band. They sounded like that. There were other bands like Soundgarden. Soundgarden sounded like a more maybe a a more raw Led Zeppelin to me. And I was into all that stuff. And what's funny is Nirvana were kind of a baby band among those bands. They weren't even that highly regarded. If you read Spin or these other magazines that were writing about the scene, no one talked about them. But when I heard them, uh, I instantly loved it. And I happened to uh, be record shopping and I found a used copy of Bleach. For five bucks, four ninety nine, at this record store called Beat City downtown, and it kind of snuck up on me because they were never a band I would have considered to be one of my favorite bands right away. And I never, even after that, I was such the little mini rock critic at the time, and I kind of still am. I would not have put Bleach among the ten greatest albums of all time or anything like that, but it kind of snuck up on me. It eventually I just couldn't stop listening to it and I played it all the time. And I remember one time we were having a party at our house and I came home late. I think I had a class and you guys were all, most people were in the front room 
But then a few of us, me, Mike, maybe you, I don't remember. Mike V was there, the DJ who had introduced us to this. Um, and we went back to my room and we just cranked this album. And everybody was into it. And it was just one of the greatest times, like this moment we had. I remember together. that. And I remember yeah, that. I'm sure you were probably in there too. We were all kind of banging our heads to this stuff. So, I, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, I remember thinking and hearing Nirvana, again, juxtaposed against the Jane's Addictions and, and some of the other more punky stuff that was popular at the time. And just going, well, I, this is what I can get into. This, yeah. this sounded like, as you were saying, Motorhead or or Black Sabbath or those heavy, crunchy guitars. And I, I was like, I like this. And if this is the direction that music is going, I'm into this. And, and I just remember thinking, wow, I was like, again, you all were sort of into all those other bands that you were talking about. And I was like, eh, not so much. But right. this, I was like, I'm full into this. And this is, I think, kind of brought us all onto the same page at that moment in time, as you were describing. So, yeah. So I, and one of the things that I think I hear in this record a lot is I hear a lot of early Aerosmith. I hear Cheap Trick for sure. I think that uh, Kurt Cobain sounds a lot like a, a grittier, grungier, as it were, uh, Robin Zander. So, and, you know, then there's another song we didn't play, which is about a girl, which is just Beatles. It's straight up Beatles. And so I heard that melodic kind of power pop in there too, which is something I've always loved. I love anything that sounds like the Beatles. I love the Beatles. So I love that, you know, that melodic stock sense, even though that would come out even bigger in Nevermind, it's all there kind of in its nascent form in Bleach. And I think there's just something about it. It just hooked me. There was something. I also love how dumb and smart it is at the same time. The lyrics on this album are, they seem moronic, you know, like school is just, a, I think it's two or three lines at the most, right? I'm I in high school like, again. No won't recess. Won't you Would you believe it? it? It's just, just my luck. Yeah, no exactly. recess. I mean, that's funny. Yeah, it is. You know, funny. it's actually funny. It's kind of clever. And I'm a negative creep when I'm stoned and the song scoff. Give me back my alcohol. Give me back my alcohol. You know, it's these repeated kind of moronic lines. It's kind of reminds me of the Ramones in its simplicity. And I think I love that, too. Yes. So, yeah, I got really into this, uh, you know, again, mostly due to Mike, Mike V and so it came around, around, you know, they came to San Francisco, they were going to play. And so a bunch of us planned to go. And on Valentine's Day, 1990, we went and saw Tad, the band Tad, which uh, is named after the lead singer, Tad Doyle, I think his name is. And he's like a 300 pound plus guy. Um, and Nirvana was playing with them. So Tad opened up. And they even did a stage dive. It was pretty incredible. And then Nirvana played. But actually, I'm jumping ahead of myself because the fun thing was we all went. Actually, one of our roommates who loved to drive your car <laughs> uh, <laughs> decided to drive your car. He borrowed your car to drive us all there. And then we went to uh, my friend, you know, our friend Mike's house and, and had, you know, mac and cheese dinner with his mom. It was real fun. And then we went to the show. And the funny thing was Mike was Mike V. So there's Mike, who's a different Mike. And then there's Mike, Mike V. We'll call him Mike K. Who's Mike our, K. So Mike friend. K's mom, you know, and, and me, and it was a 21 and over gig. 
And and, I was, uh, by the way, the, the reason I didn't go to this is I was barely 19 at the time. So right, I was a little right. bit younger. I, there's, I didn't have a fake ID. There was no way I was going to get into this club. So I was just like, oh, screw it. I just can't yeah. go. So, so we went, right? And, and Mike V was actually under 21. And he had this fake ID from another friend named Paul that he kind of only sort of looked like that he would use all the time to get into shows because Mike V would go to see all these bands. He was a DJ on the radio station. He would interview guys in the bands. Um, you know, he was just a, a hardcore. A, a, yeah. He was just like a little junior Kurt loader. Exactly. You know, he, and he, he would, had that DJ voice and the whole bit. And it was, he was kind of pompous and stuff, but great at the same time. And he, uh, he came with us and, when we got to the door, he ended up screwing up the birth date on this fake ID he had used many times. And so he couldn't get in and he was all mad. It was, it, we just thought it was hilarious. Can you imagine? So I got to, I got to ask about this a little bit. So you'll talk about the show and all that, but how awesome was that ride home when the, all the rest of the guys were talking about how great the show was and he was just yeah. sitting there stewing cause he fucked up and couldn't get in the show. And, and again, there was nobody who's more into this band than Mike V, right? Yeah. He's, He's the, the one, one who got he us. Was, yeah. He was, he pushed us. He was <laughs> another guy like me whose <laughs> favorite sub pop band was Nirvana. And yet he completely missed the show. Oh my God. I, yeah. That's still funny to me. It's really funny. Um, yeah, that's great. So, so talk about the show. So yeah, the show was fantastic. Um, so a couple of things uh, too is, I actually have the set list for the show. I still have it. You know, bands would write their songs down and tape the set list to the stage. I actually snag that. So I have it. So I have to find it. It's somewhere in my papers and, you know, boxes away. And I probably should frame it because it is one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. Um, I also had a t-shirt for the show. And with the what t-shirts are worth now, this is like a 1990 vintage Nirvana t-shirt. I can't imagine how much that would go for on like eBay. I don't know if I still have it. I couldn't find it. I was going to wear it today um, I because I probably fits me again. For years, it didn't uh, when I got fatter, but now it fits. But I don't know where it is, and I'm kind of bummed if I, it was stupid to get rid of. I mean, I would never sell it, but it would be worth a lot now because it was of course, a really early T-shirt design. So the show was great. I mean, they played a lot of stuff off Bleach and they played a couple new songs. One was called Dive, which would come out later on the um, B-Sides compilation, Incesticide. And that was more melodic. You could see where they were developing, right? They might have played Breed too, but I don't know if, I, I think they played Breed in the other show I saw them. I might be mixing that up. Again, I don't have the set list in front of me, but they played mostly stuff from Bleach and a few B-Sides and things. But the show was just fantastic. I mean, the the Kurt Cobain's charisma was was already apparent, and the band just shredded. I mean, at that time they still had Chad Channing, who's this little guy who was their one, their first drummer. They actually went through several drummers, they almost a Spinal Tap array of drummers <laughs> before landing on Dave Grohl. But he was a great drummer too, and they were just. It was just a fantastic show. They were great live. He sang great. Um, and after the show, you know, they broke all, they did the Who thing. They always did that um, kind of a cliched thing to do, to break all your instruments. But he smashed his guitar and he was picking up the pieces at the end. And, you know, we went up and talked to him. So that was, I actually met him. 
you know, and it was, I was surprised to find out from, uh, reading on the band that he actually wasn't into heroin at the time, but he really seemed like he was, (laughs) he was definitely out of it. Um, you know, and he was shy and quiet and probably didn't want us geeks like going up to him, but it was cool. I got to, so I got to meet him. So, yeah. And then, and then that summer they toured with Sonic Youth and they played at the Hollywood Palladium and me and some of my uh, friends from high school went and saw them. And at that time I noticed that a lot of people in the crowd were wearing Nirvana t-shirts. It seemed like as many people were there for them as Sonic Youth and Sonic Youth was much bigger than Nirvana at the time. They were the biggest band of that whole scene at the time. Sonic yeah, I think they, they kind of were. I mean, and they just come out with Goo, which was their major label debut, which was on DGC Records, which is what Nirvana would, that's the label Nirvana would sign to, right? Under the influence of uh, Sonic Youth, they would also sign with their management company. Um, and this started with this tour. And they, on and that time, they were still playing mostly uh, stuff from the first album, but they did have Breed. They did play Breed. And Breed is one of the songs on Nevermind that really sounds more like it could have come from Bleach. There are a couple of them. Um, Territorial Pissings is another one, right? They're these more raw, stay away. They're these more raw punk sounds. They're not as uh, punk songs. They're not as poppy. But um, I remember being struck by that song at the time and thinking, these guys are just getting better. You know, they're just building on, you know, songwriting is getting kind of better they were on and, the rise, um, you know yeah and that was a great show too that was a great show too right and so you know and then a year later or so i didn't even buy never mind i didn't know it had come out my roommate brad my you know one of my best friends brad hackman he had bought the tape of never mind and he said wow you know this is really kind of mainstream and i played it and at first i was kind of not overwhelmed by it because it had a weird guitar sound. You know, it has, it has that big drum sound and we could talk about that more. Um, it has that big drum sound. It has a different guitar sound. It's very effects laden. Um, and I listened to it and I thought, yeah, this is really produced. This is a major label debut. And I kind of didn't think much of it, but I just kept playing it. I just kept listening to it. I couldn't stop listening to it. And this was right before I went to Japan for a year and a half. So I was out of the loop. Uh, And then I remember uh, you and I would write and send tapes back and forth. And you had told me, hey, that band you like, Nirvana, they're the biggest rock stars in the world right now. And I saw the Rolling Stone cover eventually because things would come to Japan late. It wasn't like this was pre-internet days. So this is early 90s. So to get music news and stuff. You have to explain that you were in Japan at the time. Right. Yeah, I was in Japan. I was yeah. teaching English in Japan yeah. for a year and a half. So when I when we would, you know, I wouldn't get music over there. And I, you know, just people would have to send me tapes because I wasn't in a huge city. So if I was in Tokyo or Osaka, I would be able to get Rolling Stone and Spin and all that. But the magazines would come out much later then. And so, you know, there eventually was the Rolling Stone cover. And so I did see that they had been huge. And I think part of my whole ambivalence about them at the time was that Bleach was kind of mine. You know, it was like this weird cult album that only people, some people liked. And even, you know, before Nevermind, no one saw Nirvana coming because all of the 
press was all about Soundgarden. Soundgarden were getting big. And then a lot of the critics like Mud Honeymore, who were the kind of originators of grunge, and we can go into that more in the history bit. But um, Nirvana were seen as just, you know, a mediocre band by a lot of these critics. So right. no one expected them to be the ones. And I and we, all of our group, kind of saw the, the greatness in them that a lot of people didn't see. So when they became huge, I was kind of like, well, you know, they're not mine anymore. They're not this weird little obscure cult band. And I was rooting for them, but at the same time, I was kind of ambivalent. And that's kind of, I guess that that takes us to, you know, that's kind of my history with them, really. I mean, I could talk more about my subsequent thoughts of them when we do the evaluations. So tell us a little bit about the background of the album itself. Yeah, so the story of Nirvana is really the story of Kurt Cobain. I mean, I think that Chris Novoselic and especially Dave Grohl added to the band, but Nirvana is really him. He grew up in this uh, small uh, Washington town called Aberdeen. It was kind of a hick town, and he had a pretty rough childhood. You know, his he was his childhood was really good until his parents got divorced. And when his parents got divorced and his his father had this new family and his mother was like dating and seeing these men, you know, they didn't like him. And he had he was diagnosed with ADHD at a really young age. And by the time he was a teenager, they just couldn't handle him. So he was going back and forth between parents' houses. He even lived with friends for a while and eventually he would be kicked out. And um there's this whole mythology around him, and we'll talk more about that later because he's very, let's just say he doesn't exactly always tell the truth about his past. And one of the things was that he supposedly lived under a bridge, you know, for a while. And that's the <laughs> song, hasn't? Something, right, Something in the Way, right? That song, Something in the Way, where he's like talking about his tent springing a leak. This is supposed to be autobiographical. Everyone who's in the know who grew up with him says this is complete horseshit, that he never lived under a bridge. But, you know, I guess that was his truth, you know, to a certain extent. He he created his own mythology around all right, this. Right, right. And he would he would embellish it. I mean, the, there's also this constant kind of conflict between him wanting to be authentic, underground you know, punk rock and him wanting to be a megastar and be a pop songwriter that plays into that mythology. You know, for instance, he would often say, my first concert was Black Flag. Well, that's not true. His first concert was Sammy Hagar with Quarter Flash opening. <laughs> nice. So that's I, I a, that's a perfect that, example. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's the perfect example of that kind of myth making, right? So he was into music from a pretty young age, as, as mentioned in that clip earlier. And he was listening to Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, Black Sabbath, all the classic rock stuff. So I hear that in his music a lot. But around 1983, 84, you know, he's like 16, 17, he meets uh, the Melvins. Uh, and they're a punk band from around Aberdeen. It's actually a different town that I don't remember, but he sees them and the Melvins are kind of the progenitors of grunge. I, early on, they were probably more straight-ahead punk, but eventually they were much more Sabbath-y sounding. I actually saw them in Santa Cruz as well, and they're 
they're they make bleach look mainstream i mean they're very heavy band and um you know they uh they they were not ever going to be really a big commercial band even though they eventually got a major label deal they were always kind of underground and harder to listen to i think so so he started this band influenced by them called fecal matter and awesome. they had this Great song name. spank through which is essentially if you listen to it it sounds like grunge yeah I mean, this is like 1983-84, and you hear that guitar riff, and that sounds like Bleach. It's already right. there. Um, and so I think, you know, he he started then, and then he met uh, Chris Novoselic. Eventually, they started Nirvana. And they were signed to a label called Sub Pop. And Sub Pop was almost like a startup, because they were Sub Pop was started by this guy, Bruce Pavitt, and they were constantly on the verge of bankruptcy. And they would spend money they didn't have. They had great marketing. I mean, the record label itself is a great piece of graphic design history. And, you know, they were putting out these albums by bands like Green River. Green River was the first real grunge band, which was started by, um, you know, members of what would later be Pearl Jam and Mud Honey. And Mark Arm was the main guy in Mud Honey. He was friends with Bruce Pavitt. Actually, Bruce Pavitt ended, had to borrow money from him to keep the label running at one point. And uh, you know, Mark Arm is actually the guy who coined the term grunge. And we could talk more about, I think we're going to talk more about the nature of what grunge is, because I'm not even sure I completely understand grunge as yeah. a genre, because it encapsulates so many things that sound so different. To different people too. Everyone right, finds exactly. It I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is later. But so, Nirvana was signed. They released a single called "Love Buzz," which is a cover of um, this band, Shocking Blue. They're most famous for the song "Venus," uh, um, that was later covered by Bananarama. Uh, they uh, they released this single, and it you know did a little bit of uh, business around lo- the local area. Um, but eventually they got into the studio with this guy, Jack and Dino and recorded bleach bleach cost $600 to make, uh, probably the greatest prop, one of the greatest profit margins of all time, because eventually probably. it would sell 1.6 or 7 million copies, be the biggest selling record in sub pop history. And, you know, they got, they toured and they word of mouth started to generate, uh, as I mentioned, they hooked up with Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth turned them on to their management company, and they were also signed to that Geffen uh, subsidiary called DGC. Uh, when DGC got them, uh, they hooked them up with uh, Butch Fig. And this is another interesting thing about uh, with this conflict of mainstream and not mainstream. So the original Butch Fig mixes is, are very different from what you hear on Nevermind. It was actually remixed again by this guy, Andy Williams with Kurt Cobain's cooperation. So later, Kurt Cobain would denigrate the mix of Nevermind, um, but he was all part of it. So it's that same conflict again. Yep. So DGC originally thought Nevermind would sell about 50,000 copies, <laughs> so they didn't print much of it, and it just started to build, you know, and mainly off of the strength of Smells Like Teen Spirit. 
around this time too, before this time, uh, before, right before Nevermind, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana were living in Olympia, which was the, uh, I guess, uh, an, it had its own music scene that was led by this guy named Calvin Johnson, who started this label called K Records. He had this band called Beat Happening, and they had also signed a classic uh, British punk band called the Vaselines, which was Kurt Cobain's favorite group of all time. And Nirvana would cover one of their songs called Molly's Lips. But Calvin Johnson had this aesthetic where he was almost like a kind of punk rock Nazi. So he had these rules. And if you disobeyed these rules, you were kind of cut out of the scene. And Kurt Cobain really respected him and wanted his approval. He had a K Records tattoo. Um, Calvin Johnson's band, Beat Happening, he expressed some admiration for them, although he really liked the Vaselines more. And Beat Happening is awful. If you want to listen to some terrible music, there you go. Yeah. Um, it was also part of the, uh, the Olympia scene also included the Riot Girl movement, which was started by Kathleen Hanna and the group Bikini Kill. And one of the members of Bikini Kill, Toby Vale, was Kurt Cobain's girlfriend at the time. And he was, it was kind of a, a one-way love affair. You know, it was unrequited to a certain extent, even though they dated, she wasn't as serious about him. And a lot of the songs, Lounge Act, On a Plane, I think, uh, Drain You, are about her on Nevermind. So she was a big influence. So this kind of elitist, he was attracted to this kind of elitist underground uh, movement and always wanted to be accepted by it. And they were always but on the margins of that. Not they were always on the margins of that, and he was he was involved, but I don't think he ever quite felt accepted by that. And Got he it. had, I think, he, he also had this ambivalence about wanting to be, you know, a pop songwriter. He had hooks, you know, he had melodic songs, as we would see on Nevermind. And he loved the Beatles, which a lot of those other bands would probably be just, you know, horrified yeah, maybe, by yeah, that could be. So. When Nevermind came out, uh, you know, it just started growing. And eventually it would sell 30 million copies, you know, uh, in the end. So it became huge. And so that's kind of the background around it. And really, one of the things that really broke it was that MTV started playing the video. And the video was, you know, just uh, I think it, it it kind of encapsulated a lot of the, the symbology of the grunge and alternative movements. You know, you had a, a audience full of kind of... Uh, random people in Nirvana's circle. You had cheerleaders with the anarchy symbol on their uniform. You know, you had the whole thing of Nirvana looking different than what had come before. And just that song, when people heard it, even when they would play it before Nevermind was released in concert, people would react to it. It was that kind of song. It really, people knew it was, I think people almost knew it was, it was going to be huge. It's an anthem I think, at that point even, right? Yeah, it was an anthem even to people who hadn't heard it before. You know, it was a new song they'd pull out and people went apeshit. They just went apeshit every time they played it. Yep. That's kind of the background. I think we can leave it at that. We can talk about, uh, you know, in our evaluations, we could talk about, you know, maybe in utero and the unplugged and some of the stuff that came after. But that's what led up to Nevermind. So okay. that kind of sets the context. Yep. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about uh, where we see this long term in our in our evaluations. Um, I'll go. I'll take a first crack here. I think in general, I, I'm long on this, although turning towards neutral, 
and I'll, I'll talk about why in terms of valuations. But what you know, I'm talking about grunge, and we were alluding to this a little bit earlier, which is um, what is grunge exactly? How is it different from what came before? How it will be seen in in the future? And by and large, I think if you look back at that '90s era, we're already obviously some decade beyond it. I think you go another couple decades. Not much is going to be thought of it in general, I think, and besides Nirvana, and I'll, and I'll get to this. Um, I don't really see it as personally, and others clearly have different opinions about this, but I don't really see it as an interesting movement, musical movement in and of itself. A lot of the guitars and a lot of the heaviness that we've been talking about that sound like a Black Sabbath, that sound like a Motorhead, that sound like other things, I love all that, but in a sense... I think that you could argue, you could listen to the originals of those and, and get that sense. The punk aspects of grunge, which I think are fairly um, well you, you know, talked about and expected as part of that scene. Again, I think those are kind of already done by the prior generation punk bands, maybe a little bit better. Um, I don't really see many, many of the other bands really being super you know, interesting in that regard either. Of course, there's an uh, attraction and an a, uh, affection for a lot of these bands by people who grew up in the 90s, people who came of age in the 90s. Um, maybe that's different than, you know, Slip, you and I, who really grew up in the 80s as, as right. young teenagers. Um, I think if you remove a lot of that, uh, you know, context as it happens when these things get crunched down and edited for content, as it were, in the historical, uh, you know, backdrop, it's not all that interesting. And I think beyond Nirvana, a lot of these other bands we've been talking about are um, maybe ranging from okay to not that great. And one of the bands I'm going to talk about that I think is was very popular, arguably even more so over a longer period of time than Nirvana. Although nothing else will never mind by close. But this band is very popular. They still remain popular. <laughs> Wait, is this uh, is this share? You playing share? Horrible. <laughs> that is one big pile of shit. It's horrible. <laughs> this is horrible, horrible music. Pearl Jam is a terrible band. Their music is terrible. It's cliched in every possible fucking way. I mean, listen to this. Yeah. The, I just think, and look, I think you, people are going to look back at this era and say Pearl Jam was one of the biggest bands. They're not going to hold up. They're just not going to hold up beyond the people who have that affection for them because they grew up with them. Um, I think Pearl Jam's probably the other reference band from this time that people will be talking about. Um, and when you go back and you look at their music, when you go back and look at what they actually did, what was interesting about them or not, as the case may be, it's not going to be something that is going to be attractive to future generations, in my opinion. Um, the other bands that were popular uh, at that time, and to some degree still have some uh, you know, affection, things like this. Horrible. That is one big pile of shit. And there was Ace sitting on the toilet taking a dump. <laughs> You're going to play this every podcast? Probably. <laughs> So, <laughs> Stone Temple Pilots, 
is even worse than Pearl Jam, in my opinion. And that's well, they're a copy. They're Stone Temple Pilots were just a band that didn't even play this kind of music in the you know in the eighties, and then they just uh, uh, saw dollar signs, and it worked. It did. It essentially worked. And the the Yarl thing, which is something that just still makes me cringe. All of it. There were other bands though that were a little bit better. Uh, this is a band that I can't say I'm a huge fan of, but I definitely hold in higher regard than the garbage that we just heard, which is this. I think this band is actually pretty great. <laughs> I think we'll disagree on, on their level of greatness. I like Alice in Chains. I think that's a great song. I think uh, Dirt is a great album, too. But they're, you know, they're of the era, but... And they're from Seattle, but they were really part of a different scene initially. I think, um, you know, Pearl Jam has lineage in grunge, but Alice in Change was actually kind of a Guns N' Roses-y style hair band before they started playing this kind of music. But I think they had so much talent um, that, it, you know, I think they transcended that. Uh, whereas Pearl Jam, it seems like, you know, I mean, they had talent too. Well, the other thing with these bands is they're so polished compared to Nirvana. Yes. You know, they they seem already mainstream to me. Like, I don't get how Pearl Jam, there's anything alternative about Pearl Jam at all. I mean, there are definitely, there are new sounds there, like the Jarl, which again, I agree with you on. And at Alice in Chains, there's some new melodic things going on. I mean, Wood is a really interesting track that's one of their best i think i agree and i think it's definitely 90s sounding it doesn't sound like what came before but it doesn't seem like the same genre to me as nirvana in a lot of ways yeah i i think that's fair i do think that they're much better i like like i said i like alice in chains they're not my favorite band i probably don't yeah. like them as much as you but i at least listen to a song like like wood and like uh, or man in the box i like that song right and so I it's like the Joe Walsh of grunge. Yeah. <laughs> Men in the box. Yeah. <laughs> Men in the box. Uh, I like them better. I I think they're more talented. I think, uh, what is it, Lane Staley is his name, right? The singer? Yeah. Um, I think his voice is more interesting. They're, they're, to me, one of the better bands of that time. The last band I'm going to talk about that was super popular, We talked. you mentioned them earlier, is Soundgarden. Soundgarden, I'm mixed about because there are things that they did, especially early on, and the guitars are 100% classic rock kind of heavy yeah. sounding stuff, which I like. Uh, Kim Fail, right, is a really good guitarist. Right. I think Chris Cornell is a good vocalist. Obviously, he has a lot of range. People go on and on about how great a vocalist he is. I think it's a little overdone. But they're definitely a talented band. There's a lot there. But the problem that I have ultimately with Soundgarden is what's going to be remembered is this. <laughs> horrible which is a horrible piece of shit it yeah. is a horrible piece of shit that song is stupid it is probably one of their more popular songs uh when yes. you know me black hole sun or things like that and i feel that over time that's going to be featured more than some of their early stuff their first album that had better better stuff on it and again i i think that um one of the interesting things about the alternative grunge-y sort of era is people are talking about their big punk fans. 
Uh, Kurt Cobain in the opening montage talked about he's a big punk fan. And a lot of the bands were punk fans. But one of the interesting things about all this, you know, alternative music is it kind of lost its innocence pretty quickly as the music industry descended and when Nevermind exploded and all these other bands, it was like throwing money at every band that had, you know, grungy looking dudes from Seattle or whatever it is. And, and I, I just don't, it lost its authenticity if, if it had any, certainly some bands had that. And Kurt Cobain struggled with that as I think you'll talk about a lot uh, upcoming here, um, it, a huge amount. And so you know, for the most part, I think when you're looking back at this, you're going to see Nirvana, mostly. Um, you're going to see people who had kind of affection for these other bands that grew up with them. But for no, Nirvana is going to be the one band that you're going to hear about. And the it's not just the music, right? The cultural impact was significant. I mean, of course, you had Weird Al's video of, you know, where he's talking about having marbles in his mouth and he did like that. <laughs> yeah. Frame by frame copy of this. I was like, Kurt loved that, by the way. He did. He loved it. He said one of his greatest moments was when Weird Al asked him to do a parody. Yeah. And and I think that probably validated, you know, Kurt Cobain in the sense that, you know, he wanted a way to sort of mock his own music that it was hard for him to do. Yes. Even though he tried to, in his own way, uh, kind of being disaffected in interviews and kind of being unapproachable and not being overly kind of enigmatic and, you know, things like that. So, and, and really, I think a lot of the Kurt Cobain story, and if you look at interviews around the time after they became the biggest band in the world, you know, Nirvana really tried, especially Kurt, tried to hide from their fame. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I kind of viewed it as almost hiding in a series of like those rush, those Russian, those nested Russian dolls, you know, um, where like self-sabotage, uh, defiance just in like against authority against people trying to interview him against anything that he could. Um, and you could see it. it. I mean, he was a genuine guy in a lot of ways and you could just see it in his face that he was just so desperately trying to crawl out of being, as he said, Mick Jagger or John Lennon or, you know, one of these huge, huge rock stars. And he was so uncomfortable with it. And it was like, it was, it was painful to watch, but Nirvana was caught in, you know, really a historic riptide and the machine had them, as I say, right? Like the music machine, the the popular culture machine, the industry had them and they weren't going to shake loose from that. And I think ultimately um, it, it really is what did Kurt in, he, you know, and his personal demons and all that, which I think you're going to talk a little bit more about. There's unsavory things about the Kurt Cobain thing. I, I don't think he is necessarily like this, you know, angelic guy that's sometimes pointed to. I think some of the less savory things are um, edited out uh, in people's minds. What happens to everybody, you know, all the people of earlier generation had Jim Morrison posters and things like that. It's like, uh, right. you know, not a great guy either. But all the Sid Nancy things that they did with, when uh, Courtney Love came on the scene was a little much. Um, I think he was amused by her. Um, he, maybe he was the only one who was amused by her, I think. Um, for the most part, I think she was just an annoyance to the rest of the world and still is it, to the degree that anyone knows what she's up to. Um, the other thing I just want to briefly talk about and turn it over to you is the other cultural things that this scene, and I think particularly in Nirvana, sort of unlocked. 
And some of those were really amusing. And one of those was a comic book that you and I and others of our scene were really into uh, called Hate. Yeah. And Hate was uh, drawn and written by uh, Peter Bag or Baggy. I never knew how to say his Yeah, name. me neither. A Seattle guy um, who was really into all this music, who drew this uh, comic book with these characters that were kind of of the same age. And there was one in particular that I remember that was, still cracks me up where the main uh, character of uh, Hate, um, now I forget his name. What was the- Buddy Bradley. Buddy, Buddy Bradley, that's right. right. Like, how to kind of forget that. But Buddy Bradley was um, bemoaning the fact that all the people that he met, all the dudes that he met around Seattle and the comic book took place in Seattle were all named Kurt. <laughs> yeah, he manages a band in the comic, and and this is Kurt, blah 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 blah, and Kurt, and the band has a song where they sing, "I scream, you scream, we all scream for heroin." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that cracked me up then. It still does now, but you get the idea that the, it just suffused to everything. This this whole alternative Nirvana led scene. And I think that in the long arc of history, when people look back at this era, most of these other bands are probably not going to get much play. There might be a little from some of the other ones I mentioned, but for the most part, it's going to be Nirvana and the song that they're going to play, the emblematic song they're going to play is Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I think just based on that, I'm slightly long and not because I don't like them, obviously, if we're just talking about how much I do, but just because they're already so highly valued and I think over time they'll be a little more so as some of these other bands recede into history. Um, lastly, in terms of receding into history, unfortunately, the only band that can still really play intact of the ones I mentioned is this, right? So you get, you get, yeah. it, you can go around and and hear uh, Eddie Vedder's Jarl at casinos near you. Uh, they probably still draw a pretty big crowd, which is just painful to me because obviously, they, yeah, they absolutely have a kind of almost cult-like following, and they've been at it consistently. And I do think they and he have some level of integrity with what they're doing. I just don't happen to like it very much. Maybe you know? so, but yeah. So anyway, I say go long slightly, uh, just based on those factors. So uh, slip, I'll turn it over to you. Cool. So when we initially talked about doing this, I was going to short them because I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe they're overrated. You know, obviously I have a, a personal history with them, but looking back, I feel I kind of felt like it was blown out of proportion. And, you know, I thought, sure, I'll do this and I'll listen to them again. And, you know, this has been fun doing these episodes because it kind of gets me back into these bands and Really, I just became a fan all over again, listening to the music. I think the music is great. I think Nevermind is a stone-cold classic. I think it's flawless from start to finish. Uh, it's probably their greatest album. I still love Bleach more, uh, just Me from too. a personal perspective. But empirically judging the records, I think that Nevermind is a crowning achievement. And uh, it, just, it just brought me all back you know, to those days. Uh, part of it, I think, too, is that, you know, like I mentioned, this friend Brad Hackman I had, he died around 93 in a car accident. And I just have so much of this time is tied up with him. And so much in Nirvana is just of that time because they were just around for that time. 
you know, even in utero is so an, an album I really shorted. I thought, you know, this is just a mess. It's B sides. There's only a few good songs. I still don't think it's that strong of an album. I think it's kind of overrated in Wait, a sense. You don't listen to Penny Royalty. No, okay. Uh, no, I think the lyrics are really good on that album, but I don't really like the music much. There are a few really good songs on there. I think Heart Shaped Box is a great song, even though I'm kind of sick of it, I guess. But it just doesn't have that joy or something. Like, never mind, even though the, a lot of the lyrics are depressing, there's a joy to it. There's a an energy to it. And in utero really just does seem like a suicide note. At that point, he was really smacked out. I do think there's great moments on it, um, but I don't, it's probably my least favorite of their albums. And I also think Unplugged has brilliant moments on it. And we'll talk about that. It's um, That's almost more like a Kurt Cobain solo album in a way. Um, and I do think that's what would have happened. I don't think he would have, if he would have stayed alive, which again, it seems inevitable that he was going to die. Yeah. Uh, just looking at it, I mean, we'll talk about Nevermind and all the gun references that were already there. I mean, I didn't talk about this uh, in my kind of history, but, you know, Kurt Cobain's family was riddled with suicides. I mean, he had three great uncles who killed themselves. His grandfather's three brothers killed themselves, one with alcohol, two with suicides. Um, his uh, One of his other uncles on his mom's side, I think, killed him, killed himself as well. There was a lot of suicide in his family. But let's just go back to, um, you know, this whole thing about grunge that you bring up. I think you're right in a lot of senses. I do think it's kind of looked upon as a reaction. I remember that Nevermind had a huge backlash, and and that's kind of what led to Pearl Jam. I remember I had this cousin, Eric, who was, you know, we listened to Metallica together, and we liked some of the same music, but he was much more mainstream than me. And he discovered Nevermind when I was in Japan, and I wrote him back and forth. And then eventually, he kind of got sick of it and went to Pearl Jam, just like everybody did. I mean, yeah. the the real follow-up to Nevermind was Versus. Versus was one of the fastest-selling albums. <laughs> Obviously, that's 10, right? That's the first album. But Versus was their second album. And this was the follow-up to Nevermind, really, because that was where the fans went. That was one of the fastest-selling albums of all time. So, but what led to this thing? Obviously, we look at grunge as kind of a reaction to all the hair metal and stuff that was going on. But really, it was actually also a evolution, a culmination of a lot of the underground stuff that was going on. I think that if Nirvana hadn't have been around, it would have been some other band, probably the Red Hot Chili Peppers, as much as I don't like them. Uh, they were on the verge of breaking out with Mother's Milk in the late 80s. And that was a huge and, album too. Right? right. And if Blood Sugar Sex Magic had come out earlier, I think that might have been the album we'd be talking about now. Uh, you know, and there were there were other bands that were peeking through, you know, uh, to the mainstream. One of them, of course, the first one of all, which was a huge influence on Kurt Cobain. In fact, their producer, Scott Litt, was brought in to remix in utero, and we could talk more about these remixes, this constant conflict between the raw, the Nirvana wanting to be really raw, but at the same time not give up completely on commerciality. You know, they had Steve Albini, who was the ultimate underground producer, produce in utero, and his mixes are even rawer than what came out. They had Scott Litt from REM's, 
you know, who's REM's producer, come in and remix those to make them more, maybe a little less raw, maybe more commercial. So REM was a huge influence. All apologies to me is, for all intents and purposes, an REM song. It sounds just like something REM would do. Um, They were a massive influence on Kurt Cobain. In fact, the album he was listening to when he killed himself was Automatic for the People. So, you know, REM loomed large, and REM was the first kind of underground band, even though they were on a major record label from the get-go, they didn't really break through until the one I love in 87, and then Green was massive. So they were really the first of these underground bands to kind of become huge. Um, There was also, you know, SST was around with the Minutemen and all this, and Black Flag. Obviously, Kurt Cobain said Black Flag was an influence. Um, And there were the Pixies. And when Smells Like Teen Spirit was first written, by the way, the name Smells Like Teen Spirit, Teen Spirit was a teenage girl's deodorant that Toby Vale used in um, <laughs> in Bikini Kill. And Kathleen Hanna, the um, leader of Bikini Kill, actually wrote some graffiti that said, Kurt smells like teen spirit because he's was having sex with Toby Vale. So... <laughs> obviously the yeah. teen spirit rub. So that's what the title is based on. So, um, but the, but they, when they originally were playing it, Dave Grohl would say, Hey, let's do that Pixies song because the formula for Nirvana essentially was these quiet, loud parts, right. On Nevermind. There's a lot of that, right. Lithium. It's got this nice melodic Beatles like thing. And then it's, yay, you know, with the heavy thing. And, um, the uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was the same, right? The verses are kind of mellow, and then it explodes on the choruses. That was a very Pixies-style songwriting, and he was incredibly influenced by them, as he admitted. Obviously, Jane's Addiction were also on the verge of breakthrough. You know, with Ritual, Dalo, Habitual, they had some breakthrough. And they're so rooted in Led Zeppelin and classic rock, right? And then Soundgarden as well. All these bands were poised to break through at the time that Nirvana came around, and Nirvana was listening to you know, Kurt Cobain is very open about his influences, so much so that the Meat Puppets, a major influence on him, are actually on stage. A couple of the members of the Meat Puppets are on stage for Unplugged, and he does three covers of the Meat Puppets in that show. So it's almost like he's trying to bring these things that influenced him to the mainstream as well. So The guitarist on that, like Pat Smear or whatever his name was, right, would... would who did he come from? Where? Pat Smear came from a punk band. Uh, I think it was called Scream, but he was originally from the Germs. Who? The germs. That's going way back, right? The Germs were an L.A. Darby punk Crash, band. right? Or, yeah. So he yeah. dealt with another drug addict. Yeah. You know, this was the second drug addict he had to deal with. Um, yep. But he brought Pat Smear in because he wanted a second guitarist. He didn't want to have to concentrate so much on stage, on lyrics and playing and all this stuff. You know, they were a power trio. But for a small, short time, even during the Bleach era, they were a, a quartet. They had this guy, Jason Everman. Interestingly enough, Jason Everman is credited on Bleach. He didn't play on Bleach, but he actually gave Nirvana the $600 to record it. So it's kind of funny. But there he eventually go. joined Soundgarden. So, interesting fact there. So, as to my, you know, so so again, that's the context, you know, that there was this underground and Kurt Cobain was influenced by that. And then there was grunge, right? So, grunge originally, as I mentioned, coined by Mark Arm. 
And you have bands that like Mudhoney and Nirvana that are super raw, but then you have these other bands they call grunge, like Stone Temple Pilots, which were, you know, a San Diego band that kind of latched on the sound. All right. And you have Soundgarden and you have Pearl Jam. And all these bands are so polished compared to Nirvana. And they, to me, they just don't even sound the same. There's none of that Beatles influence in those bands, really. They sound much more like heavy 70s rock. And Nirvana has a lot of that too. But there's also the power pop aspect of Nirvana, which Mudhoney didn't really have either. Mudhoney almost is like a a Stooges-like band or a 60s garage band. And they have a lot of that early 70s kind of, you know, fuzz tone sound. Yeah. And Nirvana had more, maybe Bleach had more of that than Nevermind. But to me, kind of lupping these bands all into the same genre doesn't really make sense. So I don't even really believe that if, if those bands are grunge, then Nirvana isn't grunge to me. So, so, um, as I mentioned, um, you know, Kurt was, uh, Kurt was writing at this time. He was influenced by this, his relationship with this girl, Toby Vale. And um, he was also, uh, you know, and he was influenced by these underground bands, but I also hear a lot of classic rock. So I want to play that, uh, the clip for more than a feeling, if you want to put that on now. I love this song, by the way. Yeah, it's a great song. Okay, now let's switch to Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's almost like an inverted version of the same riff. And Kurt Cobain actually said he ripped that off from, from Boston. And it's it's not quite the same, but they sound very a lot alike. So there's definitely that classic rock influence as well. It's, to me, this song, I mean, we've heard it too much maybe, but I never get sick of it. I, I think it's about as perfect of a song as it could be. And this leads to my first reason for going really very long, is I don't think there's a song I mean, we talked about this previously, right? I don't think there's a single song that is as much of a signpost for a generation as this song. Agreed. Like, as I mentioned to you when we were chatting offline, you know, when when you have these documentaries about the 60s, you always see the Vietnam helicopter shot. You see the kind of crowd in People's Park with their face painted and the, you know, the girl handing the flower to the to the to the soldier. These are the sign. These are the symbols of the '60s. When people talk about the '90s, this is what you hear: this song and the video. I think the only thing that comes close is maybe "Straight Out of Compton" by uh, N.W.A. You know, they, but I think for at least this, the rock side of the equation, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" will forever be the greatest song of the '90s. Nothing could come close. Unless you're dealing with maybe some hip hop stuff, you know, that's a different genre. Right. So I think that's one thing in, in, in favor. I think this song, and I think, as I mentioned before, the song, it impacted people even before they knew what it was. So I don't think it's just that the timing, I think it's also how good the song is. The lyrics, incredible, you know, 
with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now, entertain us. I mean, that's an, a brilliant lyric. So I think as a songwriter, that's where I kind of really think that Nirvana stands strong. I think the songs are fantastic. They're simple, right? They're pretty much, and Kurt Cobain actually parodied himself in this way. He was originally going to title this album, or it was either this album or In Utero, verse, chorus, verse. <laughs> because almost every Nirvana song is just a, a verse, chorus, and a verse. They're very simple. But simple doesn't mean bad. I mean, blowing in the wind is simple, right? So, in a, in a way, it's unavoidable that this is a landmark. And part of me, you know, wanted to reject that. But it's like rejecting, you know, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. It's just, it's, what's the point, right? It's, it's already been decided. It's already important. People already remember maybe the first time they heard this song. So let's let's play the clip from Lithium, the live clip from Reading. This is how powerful these simple songs can be if we listen to this. I mean, this crowd is singing the whole thing. Right along it's, with him. Yeah, right along with him. And it's about as simple of a kindergarten melody as you could think of, but it's also indelible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just can't resist that. <laughs> um. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, he could get a little more complex maybe once on one particular song. Uh, I think listening to this again, a lot of the tracks that weren't played constantly, you know, you're in blooms, you're lithiums, you come, you're come as you are, you know, yeah. uh, really stood out to me as great songs as well. I think this is an album where every single song could have been a hit. Uh, let's listen to On a Plane because On a Plane actually has a bridge. <laughs> it's not just first chorus first. I also love those vocal harmonies with Dave Grohl, who's also a really good singer. Yeah, I mean, this even has a little Beach Boys in it to me. Oh yeah, it's got a, it's got the great harmony, and then that's. It's got this bridge here too, which again, may be the only Nirvana song that has a bridge. <laughs> and we talked about the lyrics, you know, teen spirit, uh, school. I really love this song Swap Meet from Bleach as well. It tells this whole story about a couple at a swap meet just selling used crap that really kind of gives a picture of uh, kind of the poverty of Aberdeen. Um, I think the song Polly is brilliant. Even Bob Dylan was impressed by that one. He's not impressed by that many things. Um, you know, let me clip your dirty wings, these kind of lyrics. I love Breed. The whole, um, 
you know, we could, we could plant a house, we could build a tree. I just think that's a clever little turn of phrase. I think listening to these again, I really uh, love the lyrics. I think also in utero, that's its one strength. I think the lyrics on in utero are all brilliant. Um, even though some of the music to me leaves a lot to be desired. It sounds like B-sides or outtakes some of the time. So again, I also talked about Kurt Cobain. We, we also have to talk about, you know, what he means to people as a symbol, right? Because I think that will also endure. I think, you know, it's unfortunate that he died, but in a way that kind of spoke to people. I think it kind of opened people up to his kind of inner pain and trauma. And uh, I think he was aware of this. You know, he, he as I mentioned in the, it, you know, it, proceeding before, uh, he tried to mythologize his past a lot. You know, he, he definitely knew he was seen as some kind of symbol. And I think that will resonate with future generations. I think it already is. My wife has a coworker who's very young, you know, she's in her twenties. And when she heard, I saw Nirvana twice, I mean, she almost started crying. Really? You know, this is the kind of, uh, (laughs) it's a little dramatic, but you know, these generation Z types, uh, I think definitely see him as a symbol. There's a guy named uh, Daniel, just calls himself Daniel S. on YouTube. He's a filmmaker. And he was born after Nevermind came out. And almost all of his videos are about Kurt Cobain. You know, he's so obsessed. And you see the comments about what people say, uh, you know, these people who weren't even born at the time. So he's definitely resonated. I guess that, you know, that is a, goes along with the Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin thing, maybe even Amy Winehouse to a certain extent. Morrison you know, these too, people, right? right? The Morrison, these people who died young but left this incredible legacy. Well, I think maybe you can be... remove Morrison from that, but that's a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would. Um, so, so as far as the legacy, I think it's strong. Of course, we can also talk about the bad side of the legacy. All the bands that were influenced by Nirvana, and there are many. Uh, and where did grunge eventually lead to? Well, I think it, uh, the inevitability of grunge led us to Nickelback and uh. Stained and these ter- puddle of mud and these terrible bands. <laughs> it also led to the Foo Fighters, which uh, is an interesting thing because they are, in some ways, the most popular rock band in the world right now. I mean, they've had an incredible run, and Dave Grohl showed himself to be very talented. You know, he was a, he's a great drummer. I think the drums on Nevermind are one of its key strong points. They're huge, and uh, he's a great Bonham-esque, player. Bonham-esque, you could say, almost. They are very Bonham-esque. You know, it's like when the levee breaks on every song, almost, just because of the way they're mixed. I don't know that Dave Grohl is quite John Bonham, level. No, I'm sure he would agree sound with wise, me. Sound-wise. But yeah. sound-wise, they're, they're a key component, and he was and definite a, a key ingredient to the sound. I mean, he's the other voice on those harmonies and he can definitely sing and write songs in his own right. Um, and we may have seen some kind of Foo Fighters like stuff from Nirvana if they would have continued, although I don't think they would have. I think he would have been a solo artist. He might've gotten back together with them at times. And just to even add this, as far as the legacy goes, Nirvana did have a reunion after he died But who replaced Kurt Cobain? How about fucking Paul McCartney? That is the level of Nirvana, you know? I don't think if Eddie Vedder died, Paul McCartney would join Pearl Jam. You know, that is the legacy. That is what he, even even someone like Paul McCartney. I can't wrap my mind around that concept. So please don't ever say that again. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's true. But I think that 
he even had the respect of these of these uh people from the past, right? And even Bruce yeah. Dickinson got Bruce and Dino to produce one of his solo albums, you know, his yeah. worst solo album. He made a grunge, grunge solo album. It's terrible. But, you know, even someone like that, who's arguably probably more talented, at least vocally, than anybody in Nirvana, uh, would have that respect. Sure. So as far as the stature now, too, you have to look at, you know, obviously there's Dave Grohl's legacy there. Um, you know, and I, I did some research and I found out, you know, Francis Bean Cobain, you know, she's an artist. She's actually pretty talented. Kurt Cobain was a pretty good visual artist, too. He painted the cover of Incesticide and he uh, designed the cover of In Utero and he had some really cool paintings. Um, his daughter is very talented as well. And she's actually a pretty good singer, too. She's got a good voice. So, you know, we may hear from her. But a lot of her income, she has basically 37% of the Nirvana estate. And she makes about a million dollars a year from that. So that's in, that's just in royalties. So that's only 37%. So obviously these songs are still getting played. People are still, you know, name checking Nirvana. So I think their legacy is assured. And so I'm quite long, but I think it's also just because listening to these songs again, you know, maybe after not wanting to revisit that time for personal reasons or just being sick of the stuff. Which I, 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 I became struggled an, with too, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I, you mentioned that, but to me, I listen to these kind of with new ears and I really do have respect for it. And I do think the songs will stand the test of time. I also think Unplugged, parts of the Unplugged are absolute masterpiece. I think his um, version of The Man Who Sold the World is one of the greatest covers ever done. I think a lot of that album is incredibly powerful and shows what he could do almost on his own. I mean, obviously, he had the band there with him, but he's just there with an acoustic guitar singing, and he could deliver. I think, uh, you know, uh, so that's my evaluation. Great. I'm way long and definitely uh, happy to do this episode and revisit this stuff and kind of love it all over again. Yeah, I... I uh, I agree. I, I mean, incredible talent. It's sad that, but almost inevitable, as you said. And and with Nevermind, I had a tough time listening to it because some of the tracks on it were just so overplayed. It's like I True. already have it in my head. I don't need to hear it again. Um, there's other albums like that uh, too, but it, all good. We'll wrap up this episode now. Thanks for joining us for this uh, seminal album and an, an important band. And as we both said, this sort of the standard bearer of the 90s and beyond. So thank you, and we'll see you next time. Yep. Yeah.